0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll cu- I'm cutting all of this out. You are? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene, take two. Hey. Hi. Uh, should I start with Patreon? Yeah, let's go with Patreon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you'd like to donate to our Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Scene. There you will get access to all of our bonus content. We just uploaded one... Yesterday, so there's a fresh one there for you guys. And this week we had some new contributors. Thank you guys very much. We had Kelly, Emily, Sarah, Renee, Susie, Jen, Casil, Gina, Vanessa, Sophia, Portia, Caitlin, Isabel. Olivia, Heather, Wendy, Nene, and Tito. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. And what, didn't we have another contributor? We did. Somebody sent us money on PayPal, which was so unexpected and sweet to get that. Daniel, thank you so much, thank Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Really sweet of you. Um, so you can
1: donate to us a one-time thing if you don't want to sign up for Patreon. Right. And that's just through our email address on PayPal. right? Right, right yay and then i think our poll has ended
0: our poll has ended Did we have a winner drum roll please
1: <laughs> can you do a drum roll no da, 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 da.
0: phil specter okay cool that's so that will our be
1: next week our yes. anniversary episode that you guys picked right sorry to all the people who lost <laughs> but all of those stories will be covered at some point at some so point i'm sure I we'll do uh, we'll do worry them. about it Um, Okay, should we get to this week? Yes. Well, it's sort of related to our poll because initially we had like a thread of people suggesting episodes that will probably all be done. Also, we kind of made note of them all, so don't fear. And one of our listeners on our page, her name is Jet.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. I know Jet.
1: She suggested somebody named Rebecca Schaefer, and she mentioned that July 18th was the anniversary of her murder, which oh. is this week coming up. I think it will be the 29th anniversary. So not wow. like an exactly exciting. It's not like a 30. <laughs> but still, you know me, I like those anniversary dates. Right. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay. Um, if you don't know who Rebecca Schaefer is, she was a young actress who was fatally shot in the doorway of her West Hollywood apartment on July 18th, 1989 by a man named Robert John Bardo. And Bardo was obsessed with her and had been stalking her for three years at that point. The crime was a major news story all over the country, obviously, even though she wasn't super famous, she was definitely like an up-and-comer, and and it had all the elements that a story like that would take off, like a young life cut short, and she's pretty and all of uh, that kind of stuff. So I am going to tell you her story, but first I want to tell you about another Hollywood stalking that took place before Rebecca. And has an eerie connection to Rebecca's case, um, and that's the stalking incident involving an actress named Teresa Saldana. So Teresa Saldana was born in Brooklyn and was adopted uh, at five days old. Um, she was raised in a Puerto Rican and an Italian family. She uh, started taking dance lessons as a as a young child. She was like a you know natural born performer. At some point, she got an injury during her dance career. I mean, if you can call it that as a child. And that's when she started doing acting at the age of 12. After being spotted by a talent scout while performing in an off-Broadway musical called the New York City Street Show in 1977, she was cast in her first movie, a 1978 film called Nunzio. From there, she landed roles in bigger films, including the 1980 films Defiance and Raging Bull, which is probably her most famous movie. It was from those movies, that she caught the attention of a man named Arthur Richard Jackson, who was a forty-six-year-old drifter from Scotland. He became extremely attracted to the actress after seeing her in those movies.
0: How old was she again?
1: Um, she at the in the early eighties. Yeah, I mean, she would have only been like in her late teens, twenty, like early twenties. she's young. She's just starting out, kind of similar to um, Rebecca. Arthur Richard Jackson obtained Saldana's address by hiring a private investigator to obtain the unlisted phone number of Saldana's mother. He called the mother and posed as Martin Scorsese's assistant, saying he needed Saldana's residential address in order to contact her for replacing an actress in a film role that was being made in Europe. He considered himself to be a benevolent angel of death. That's his self-described description. Damn. On March fifteenth, 1982, Jackson approached Saldana in front of her West Hollywood residence in broad daylight. He said excuse me to her and asked her if she was Teresa Saldano. and when she said yes, after her identity was confirmed, he began stabbing her in the torso ten times with a five-and-a-half-inch-long hunting knife. His attack was so fierce that the blade actually bent at some point during the stabbing. There were numerous onlookers in the area including children because like i said before this was during the broad broad daylight in a very busy part of town one of those onlookers heard her screaming his name is jeff fenn he was a delivery man and he rushed to her aid wrestled the the weapon from jackson so he actually stopped the attack wow by the time the paramedics got saldana to um hollywood or motion picture hospital which i don't know do you know where that is no okay I have no idea, but it doesn't sound great. Um, Most of the blood had drained from her body and her heart had stopped. Because of Fenn's heroism, uh, heart-lung surgery that she had, and 26 pints of blood that she had to get, Um, all of that saved her life. But she literally barely survived. Like She saved her life pretty much by stopping the attack. I mean, she lost almost all of her blood. I mean, that's insane. So she did eventually recover she was in the hospital for four months and she did resume her career after that in the 90s she started in a in a show called the commish with michael chiklis uh i think that was on for a pretty the commish yeah
0: like it was the like an abc yeah it was like an abc show like they abbreviated the name commissioner yeah, the to commish, the- come on <laughs> the that commish. sounds like something i made up
1: i feel like that's one of those shows that like was on for eight years, but I never saw it. Like right, you know, just like those shows that are on forever. Right. The man who saved her life actually switched careers. Also, he um, became a police officer. So he kind of took that. Whatever you want to think about police officers. I think he had his heart in the right place. <laughs> she obviously, like the attack, changed her life in numerous ways. She wrote a book about it. She actually starred in a made-for-TV movie based on the book, like, as herself. That's wild. Yeah. That was called Victims for Victims, the Teresa Del Saldana story, and I think you can actually find that on YouTube. Uh, she was also in an inspired by, like, her story was a, an inspired by episode of a show called Hunter that I think was also, like, a crime kind of detective-y type thing. And as I said, she also wrote the book that's called Beyond Survival, and that's a memoir of her experiences of being attacked. Jackson, the man who tried to kill her, was convicted of attempted murder and inflicting great bodily harm. He received a 12-year sentence, which at the time was the maximum sentence for that crime in California. Now it? it carries a penalty of life in prison. While he was in jail, he continued to threaten her life. In March of 1988, she learned that he had sent a letter to Jonathan Felt, who was a producer for the show Geraldo at the time. And he outlined in this letter his plan to assassinate her. In the letter, he wrote, I am capable of alternating between sentiment and savagery, romance and reality. Police or FBI protection for Teresa Saldana won't stop the hit squad. Uh, And another thing that he wrote that same uh, month, he also cited Saldana together with the U.S. military personnel in Europe as targeted for death by him. He repeated his plans for Saldana in March 20th of 1989, phone call to Ellen Grehan, who was an L.A.-based reporter for the Scottish Daily Record. Why was this
0: guy allowed to be making phone calls at exactly. this
1: point? He threatened to kill Teresa, this reporter said. He also had some fantasy that Gregory Peck, Charlton Heston, and Charles Bronson were going to get him out of prison earlier and had betrayed him. Okay. So this guy's, you know, not well. Uh, fearing for her life, Saldana... Saldana advocated against his scheduled 1989 parole obviously and that sort of drew a lot of attention to the legal's legal systems difficulty in caring for these mentally ill prisoners like you were kind of just saying like why wasn't this being taken care of he ended up serving more time for making more death threat death threats in 1996 he was extradited back to england where he stood trial on an unrelated 30 year old murder charge of which he was found not guilty and which, and that was due to diminished responsibility, I think, because of his um, state of mind. He ended up spending the rest of his life in a psychiatric hospital and died in 2004. Okay, so the reason I wanted to bring up this case is because Jack- Jackson's method, the method he used to find and approach Saldana, is what inspired stalker Robert John Barrow to hire a private investigator to do the same thing to Rebecca Schaefer. He wow. heard the story and used the same techniques that this guy used to find uh, Teresa Saldana. And so this is just, I think seven years later. So nothing had changed at that point. Right. He was still able to do all of this stuff. Um, so Rebecca, let me just go into her life. She was born in Eugene, Oregon. She was the only child of Dana, a writer and instructor at Portland community college and Dr. Benson Schaefer, who was a child psychologist She's a Jewish girl raised in Portland. Uh, she initially had aspirations to become a rabbi, but began modeling during junior high uh, or her junior year in high school. She kind of was like a department store model, like that kind of doing right. catalogs and stuff like that. And she ap- appeared in a few like local television commercials and was an extra in like a TV movie. August 1984, her parents allowed her to move to New York City to pursue a career in modeling. And while she was there, she attended the professional children's school. In late 1984, she landed a role on uh, the soap opera One Life to Live. She played uh, the character Annie Barnes, and that lasted for six months, six months. She continued to try to model, but she was only 5'7", and I think at that time that was like a real, like I think it's, it's like a little bit looser now, but back then it was like if you're not 5'9", forget it. So she kind of couldn't really do the high fashion model thing. I think You she still did. can't.
0: If and the only high fashion model that's 5'7", is Kate Moss, because she's Kate Moss.
1: Right. I think there's a few other ones, but it's very rare, and they're usually like a celebrity in some other kind of Right, but way. straight up
0: like runway, Right, runway, fashion. forget it. So in
1: 1985, she actually moved to Japan, hoping to find more modeling work there, but it still kind of wasn't happening for her. At that point, she moved back to New York and decided to focus on her acting career. In 1986, she got a small role in Woody Allen's movie Radio Days. She was edited out of that. She continued modeling and also was working as a waitress. She did land a cover of Seventeen magazine, and that was what caught the attention of television producers who were casting a new sitcom called My Sister Sam, which starred Pam Dauber of Mork & Mindy. She tested for and won the role of Patty Russell, the teenager who moves from Oregon to San Francisco to live with her 29-year-old sister Sam uh, after the death of their parents. At the time, Schaefer was so poor that she didn't even have a phone when her agent tried to tell her that she had landed the role. Wow. Her agent actually had to tack a note to her apartment door in New York, telling her to report to the set of My Sister Sam. Uh, And she had to move from New York to California. It was there that she got her apartment in the Fairfax District of Los Angeles, a Tudor-style building at 120 North Sweetser. And that's where she lived alone when she moved to L.A. The series was a hit initially. It was like a top 25 hit, but was canceled halfway through its second season in April of 1988. Uh, after that, she started acting a bit more. She had supporting roles in several movies, including one that was called Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, The End of the Innocents, and a, t- a TV film called Out of Time. She also was a spokesperson for a charity called Thursday's Child. So she was kind of get working it. She did have a fan, though, already, and that was an unemployed Tucson, Arizona fast food worker who had developed an obsession with her, and his name, as I mentioned earlier, was Robert Bardo. Now, Robert John Bardo was the youngest of seven children. His mother was Korean, and his father was um, in the U.S. Air Force. The family moved a lot as a child, and they eventually settled in Tucson, Arizona in 1983, from all reports, he had like a troubled uh, childhood. He was abused by one of his siblings and at some point in his life placed in foster care after he threatened to commit suicide. Bardo's family had a history of mental illness, and at some point he was diagnosed officially with manic depression. According to a teacher of his, Bardo was a time bomb on the verge of exploding. When he was 13, Bardo took a bus to Maine in search of Samantha Smith, who I don't know of a lot... Of, I actually didn't remember who she was and then I looked her up and I had like vague memories of this she was a girl who became famous after sending a letter to Mikhail Gorbachev
0: really she became
1: like this peace activist like kind of celebrity like this kid I mean it seems like something that would happen nowadays like this kid wrote a letter to Putin right. And then, you know what I mean like whatever uh she actually died in a 1995 small plane crash with her father and there was like I was reading a bit about it. There was some controversy, like, did Russia or the USSR, like, have anything to do with this death? Um, Whatever. So he went to Maine before she died, obviously, looking for her. He's 13 years old at this point. So clearly his family is not exactly on top of it. The authorities found him up there and returned him to Tucson. He became a good student. But as I said, some of his teachers definitely saw this darker side to him. He began writing threatening letters. He was hospitalized two times for severe emotional damage or things like that. He eventually dropped out of his high school in ninth grade, and that's when he began working as a janitor at Jack in the Box. Look, This is not exactly part of the story, but do you like Jack in the Box? (laughs) Sorry. I I feel like that's a West Coast thing because I'm just not that on board with Jack in the Box. Let me
0: tell you about Jack in the Box, Desi. Okay. I have a deep love and appreciation for Jack in the Box only because when I was living as a junkie, Jack in the Box was like my one meal a week that I ate. <laughs> it was the only thing I could afford. I've been there very late at night, like that kind of thing. Right. I just it just holds a special place in my it's heart. Very greasy. Here's my order. Okay. I this is my order, Rachel, ninety five pounds, circa two thousand and five disgusting junkie once a week my meal was a spicy crispy chicken sandwich with a large order of curly fries ranch dressing and a large diet coke
1: the only thing I've ever had there is the tacos that's gross that's it they're disgusting
0: I don't even know what's in them they like have like a bean thing have I I eaten them before yes many times
1: (laughs) okay so after he after Samantha Smith died, he needed to have a new obsession, and that obsession became the My Sister Sam star Rebecca Schaefer. He actually even went so far as to build like a shrine in his bedroom to her. Shrine? So even know like shrines that are like, never a good thing. Teen bop or like bop magazine like tear out like right. sheets. Right. In the 18 months prior to Schaefer's murder, Bardo was arrested three times on charges that included domestic violence and disorderly conduct. Neighbors of his also said that he had exhibited unexplained, strange, and threatening behavior towards them. So, I mean, he is just the classic obsessed fans. He began writing letters to Rebecca and she actually responded to some of them writing that his letter was the most beautiful that she had ever received. I mean, this is like a young actress who probably didn't have that many people writing her. Like, I imagine that she just was like, grateful right to any fan letters and taking the time to like respond to everybody
0: sort of thing right and you know that with men like this if you give them an inch of attention exactly they will not let it go and they will sort of put this like prong of ownership onto you well I think
1: especially when they're not a big star they feel like it's just them right it's like everyone loves whatever you know, Julia Roberts or whoever, it's like, I think when they're not that famous, they feel like it's only me and her, right? Like it's, this it's their personal that thing, happens. Right? On one of the letters, she wrote a peace sign and a heart and signed it with love from Rebecca. What does it mean? Yeah. So for him, this is all like he, when he received that letter back from her in his diary, he wrote, when I think of her, I would like to become famous to impress her. He collected videos of all of her TV shows because she had, In addition to like my sister Sam and One Life to Live, she was on like Amazing Stories and some other small bit roles here and there. As I said before, he had his bedroom, had glossy publicity photos of her. He even mailed a letter to his sister in Tennessee telling her if he couldn't have Rebecca, no one else would. At some point he hops on a Hollywood bound bus in Tucson to track her down. In June of 1987, he arrived at the Burbank Studio Gates where My Sister Sam was produced, and he was carrying a teddy bear and a bouquet of roses for her. Obviously, the guard did not let this person in, and he returned home a month later with a knife. Oh, he returned a month later. He like went home, and then he came back a month later with a knife and obviously did not gain entrance either on that. In his diary, after that experience, he wrote, I don't lose, period. Jesus. And period is spelled out. After returning to his you know, hometown, Tucson, he lost focus on her for a while because he was pissed. And it was then he began to obsess slightly more towards uh, T- Debbie Gibson, Madonna, and Tiffany. I'm <laughs> sorry. That's like the most... Three late, women I love. The most late 80s ever, trifecta ever. ever. But in 1999, he saw Rebecca in her black comedy film The Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. And in that movie, at some point, she appears in bed with a male actor. Bardo... Flipped the fuck out when he saw that he became enraged by the scene and decided that Schaefer should be punished for becoming another Hollywood whore. I mean, this guy is fucking Unhinged. So typical abuser. It's insane. Yeah. After seeing the movie, he drew a diagram of her body and marked spots on it where he planned to shoot her. On July 17th, 1989, Bardo called Schaefer's agent agent's office and tried to find out where she lived. Obviously the agent did not give him this information. He was in LA at this time and he began roaming the streets, flashing her photo and asking passerbys if they knew her or where she lived, which doesn't seem like the most productive way to do it. <laughs> that, at that point is when he, he read the story about Arthur Richard Jackson, the man who stabbed actress Teresa Saldana in 1982 and saw that he had used a private investigator to obtain her address. Bardo approached a detective agency in Tucson and paid them $250 to find Schaefer's home address through the California Department of Motor Vehicle Records. Now, according to one thing I read, you didn't even need to pay a, to, a detective to find this, uh, a person at that point in time could go into the California DMV office, fill out a Form 70 stating who they are, what person they wanted information on, the reason and how they intended to use it. And even if they were lying, the information would be delivered to them on the spot. That's unbelievable. That's an insane... Can you still do that? Well, I'll get to that.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: uh, but that was the that was how it was back then. Like He didn't even have to get the private investigator to do this for him. Now, the other sort of element that had to come together here is that he was too young to get a gun at the time. He was only 19 years old when this happened. And this is a story that I read that was from a discussion board about the death of Anisa Jones. Do you know who she is? Hell she yeah, played- I do. Yeah. Fucking Slender <laughs> Which Man. Which I've just... Uh, no, no, no! It's from it's Buffy from Family Affair, oh. the actress who died of an OD at some point. The
0: Slenderman girl is also named Anissa. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah.
1: So this is an old child star from okay. the '70s who died of an OD at some point. I mean, she she might be someone we do a case uh, a story on. Anyway, so I love that it was on her discussion board. Right. So this is a story about the gun shop owners okay. gave at some point. Uh, So this is all of their testimony. When Robert John Bardo tried to purchase a Ruger GP100-357 Magnum at Jensen's Firearms in Tucson, Arizona in the summer of 1989, he filled out the paperwork answering yes to having been committed to a mental facility, a disqualification. He was also underage, but he had a fake driver's license that probably would have worked. The salesman, a member of the Air Force named Bob, told him he could not purchase the revolver. Revolver. Bardo got irate and said he wanted to fill out another copy. The salesman sought out help, and Jerome La Rochelle, who also worked at Jensen's, told the guy absolutely no way could he own a firearm and to get the fuck out because he did not like the the vibes he got from them. And they escorted him from the store. That's how like irate he was. Right. So the manager on duty at Jensen's hung Bardo's disqualified form on a bulletin board and wrote, "Do not sell to this individual." The next morning, Bardo came in with his brother, who purchased the same gun and gave it to his brother when they were outside the shop, which is actually a violation of federal law at the time. His brother would have known that because on the questionnaire form, it warns them that they can't make a straw man purchase and that's a violation of, like to buy a gun for someone is a violation of federal law. Yeah. So he knew he was doing something illegal, the brother, when he did it. So on July 18th, 1989, Bardo, dressed in a yellow polo shirt, rang Rebecca Schaefer's doorbell. The intercom wasn't working, so she had to come downstairs to the apartment building's front door where she saw um, him standing there. He showed her a letter and an autograph she had previously sent him. And after a short converse- conversation, she asked Bardo not to come back to her home again. She, at, the, at the time, she was actually preparing for an audition for a role in The Godfather Part Three. I wonder if it's the one that went to Sofia Coppola. Yeah. After she told him to leave, he he did leave and he grabbed a meal. I don't know. This fascinated me of onion rings and cheesecake <laughs> at Jan's restaurant on Beverly Boulevard. So probably like just around the corner from where yeah. she lived. Yeah. I just love onion rings and cheesecake. I mean, Look, that seems pretty crazy.
0: That's a meal I might get if I'm in a mood. If I'm right. like, I don't that's want a full like a, meal. That is like, I just got my period. That is exactly, I just got (laughs) rid of Where I just need some
1: fat, and I'm going to get some breakouts. And some grease. But I'm going to enjoy this. Right. So an hour later, he returns to her home and rang the doorbell again. Still in her robe and house coat or whatever, she came to the front door, turned the handle, and opened it. He said that when she opened the door, according to him, she had a cold look on her face. At that point, Bardot pulled out the gun from a brown paper bag, and shot her in the chest at point-blank range in the doorway of her apartment building. At the time, he was also carrying that classic red paperback copy of The Catcher in the Rye, uh, which he tossed onto the roof of a building as he fled. He insisted that it was coincidental and that it was not emulating Mark David Chapman, who had also carried a copy with him when he shot and killed John Lennon. That's
0: a little it too coincidental. I'm sorry.
1: Um, at some point, Bardot does give an account of exactly what happened during that moment. He, This is like a quote from him. She had this kid voice, sounded like a little brat or something, said I was wasting her time, wasting her time. No matter what, I thought that that was a very callous thing to say to a fan. You know, I grabbed the door, gun's still in the bag. I grabbed it by the trigger. I come around and kapow. She's like screaming, ah, screaming, why, ah, and it's like, oh, God. So that's like he's an angry fucking asshole, right? He's outraged that she wasn't friendlier to him, but I'm sorry. It's like a guy shows up on your doorstep like I wouldn't even fucking open the door like she's nicer than me. and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? After the gun rings, a neighbor named Richard Goldman heard both of the gunshots and the screaming, the blood-curling screaming, he described, and he rushed to her door and found her in the black robe twitching in the building's foyer. He checked her pulse but found none. Her arms were akimbo and her feet were wedged between the door and its frame. Witnesses saw the young man leaving in a yellow—the yellow the yellow shirt uh, running up the block. Uh, he turned into an alley and disappeared. Sirens began screaming because people had called 911. She was rushed to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center where she lingered for 30 minutes and then finally died. Her body was then shipped back to Oregon where her family lived for burial. When Bardo's sister heard about the murder, she immediately contacted the police about her brother. The next day in Tucson, several motorists called 911 to report a man running around in traffic on Interstate 10, uh, saying it looked like he was trying to get hit. The police came and got him. He confessed immediately to Schaefer's uh, murder. I mean, it was Bardo, obviously. Arizona police faxed his photo to LA where witnesses confirmed his identity and he was extradited back to California. Because he confessed, he he did have a trial, but it wasn't a trial about guilt or innocence. It was more about was it, he in his right mind. Right. So his, his um, defense launched an insanity defense. His prosecutor in the case, by the way, is Marsha Clark. Wow. So this is one of her, fir- or probably her first high profile trial. Um, obviously it's about three years at this point. I think it was already two years later by this point. So that's like three years before OJ. Yeah. 94, um, right? I don't know. The trial probably didn't start until 95. Anyway, anyway, side. Yeah. So as I said before, it was a non jury trial, basically deciding his guilt or innocence based on his, uh, in his frame of mind or whatever, um, Bardo's defense attorneys pleaded that he had an unstable mental condition due to childhood abuse. His first appearance in court, he appeared out of it, dazed and confused, and he did say in that initial appearance, I could probably tell you what I did after I killed her, how I got sick and all, but I don't feel like it. What was played eventually was a tape confession um, that the defense actually played, to bolster his insanity defense. That's why it was admissible. I think normally those kind of things, like confessions on tape normally aren't, but it was his defense choice to air this because they were trying to prove that he was insane.
0: Look, he? this is a very classic case of stalking right. and abuse. And here's the thing. Men fucking leave women the fuck alone. Like even if it's like, I mean, like this is something as a woman, like women are just conditioned to, to be polite, too. Well, to be polite, but also to fear right. stalkers. Like, I've had a stalker before. I've had men who I don't know or who I've been friendly with before who continuously harass me under the guise of, I really, really like you. It's like... Right. And it's scary. It is scary. And it's like you just...
1: everything that I he- feel like even if you haven't had a stalker, every interaction with a man you have in the back of your mind, is this going to be something that's going to turn, like, even if I have people on Twitter talking to me or at replying me constantly, at some point I do start to think like, are they going to kill me one day? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's sort of half joking, but every once in a while I am like, well, I'm joking about this, but should I be taking this seriously? Like, is well, it stupid
0: not to? Like- I don't think a lot of men really understand that, like, that is a very real fear for a lot of women in the back of our minds where we're constantly like being well, on guard. Well, you want to be nice but at the same time, well, sometimes I sometimes when you're nice once to some guy, they right. think, oh, I'm in. Now we're best friends. Right. And if you don't respond to them, then they get really upset with you. And you're like, oh, shit, are they going to, like, kill me now? Well, I, I did have a guy that was
1: constantly at replying me, sort of asking me out. And I kind of thought he was joking because it was sort of like, well, I don't know you. Why would I just go out with someone? And then finally, I DM'd him because he couldn't DM me because I didn't follow him. Right. So I DM'd him and I said, hey, like... I just felt like I wanted to tell you like I'm not really dating right now like thank you right whatever I was being polite but I just wanted to say I'm not interested yeah basically and he went off on me like you bitch you can't like you could have told me from the get-go and it's like (sighs) well honestly it's only been less than a week since you've been doing it and I didn't really think you were (laughs) serious like it was it was kind of like it wasn't Like, hey, let me get your number. It was more like, we should go to the movie sometime. I I don't know. It's just like, I did finally feel the need to say something. But it's like, I don't owe you anything.
0: No matter what the circumstances are, no guy should react, have that reaction. Right.
1: And it was like, when he reacted that way, part of me was like, oh, my instincts were correct. Right. Because I, I almost felt like, I think I tweeted something after this. And of course, I had men bitching at me. I tweeted something like, When a guy asks you out, say no and see how he reacts. And then if he doesn't act like a fucking baby, go out with him. And guys were like, oh, you're just playing games. It's like, not really. I think it's a good indication, the maturity level of a guy, how he takes rejection. Right. Even on the most mild level. Like, I wasn't breaking up with someone. This is just saying no to a date. Like, there's no, there's nothing between us. Like, why he would be that upset is insane to me. Right. So in these uh, taped Confessions, I guess. He talks more about the why, why. Like he keeps going on about that. It did make me think of Nancy Kerrigan. Like he seems to be mocking her saying why, why when she was dying. Right. Kind of similar to Nancy Kerrigan who said that when she got her knee hit. He did say on tape that he almost had a heart attack when he heard on the news that she had been killed. He said, It was weird. It was a weird idea to know that I had killed somebody. This was all in an interview with psychiatrist named Park Dietz, whose name I had heard before, but I didn't get a chance to investigate her further. She actually at some point diagnosed him with schizophrenia. While he's listening to his account in court, he hung his head and pressed his clenched fist over his ears. In the tape, he also talks about visiting her twice the morning of her death, carrying the gun both times. He's, he described it as being on his mission. He said that um, Schaefer answered the door, spoke to him about a postcard. Uh, she smiled at him and said, Please take care, and shook his hand as he left. That's his version. As he walked away, Bardo said he remembered he had a letter and a compact disc he meant to give her. So that's why he decided to return to her apartment. She was in her bathroom, and I was thinking, This is the wrong time. She's taking a shower. She said, You came to my door again. It was like I was bothering her again. Hurry up, I don't have much time. I thought that was a very callous thing to say to a fan. He then showed how he pulled the gun from the bag, aimed it at her, fired, and mimicked the sounds of the weapon. She was just screaming. She was going, why, why? I was just fumbling around thinking I should blow my head off and fall on her. Bardo on the tape also discussed his interest in other obsessed fans who attacked performers. In 1988, during a trip to New York City where he unsuccessfully tried to meet Debbie Gibson, he said he also visited the spot where former John uh, Beatle John Lennon was killed by Mark David Chapman so clearly he had a passing interest in that and that's why he had the book right he basically appeared disengaged throughout the entire trial like that is what most people said but there was one moment where he became very alert and engaged and that is when in the courtroom towards the end of the hearings his defense team played the song by U2 called Exit, which is off of Joshua Tree. I actually I played the song and I really didn't remember it or know it. I mean I'm not like a U2 fan, but I thought I thought if it was a big hit I would have recognized right. it, but I don't think it really was a big hit. Anyways, it's called Exit. It it's not very melodic, but it it is kind of moody. There was no distinct melody. It was just kind of actually I was clicking around trying to find the chorus. Right. And it was like all this empty music with no lyrics. So I don't know. So he, like I said before, he kind of basically was out of it and motionless throughout the trial. He sprang to life and grinned and bobbed the music and was mouthing the lyrics when that song was played in court. Uh, the judge watched him as he was like rocking in his chair, drumming with his hands on his leg and smiling, and he mouthed the lyrics pistol weighing heavy. This song is actually inspired by two books about murderers, Norman Mailer's The Executioner Song and Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Uh, As I mentioned before, this was a key part of his defense. His legal team admitted that he had shot Schaefer, but they were arguing that he was suffering from schizophrenia and that this very sick young man had been inspired to kill her by listening to the song Exit that I mentioned before was on 1987 album Joshua Tree. A psychiatrist, I think it was the, the one I mentioned before, testified that Bardot interpreted parts of the lyrics as a reference to himself and Schaefer
0: look if someone murders me it better be to madonna song (laughs)
1: seriously i'd be so mad
0: if it was a u2 song like i'm
1: just i know that's not like the the point but it's like come on like if i'm dying anyway i want it to be a good song like Lucky star come on something (laughs) (laughs) Something. (laughs) also a murder would be more devastating if you're watching it in a film and it's like lucky star is playing while you're getting shot it'd be like whoa (laughs) rather than a moody thing like i just feel like you know cinematically
0: look i love lucky star you need a contrast i love lucky star i would pick personally open your heart to me yeah
1: see i never that's liked that dark
0: song. oh yeah you didn't like that song right i know i it's
1: like it's one that never just caught on with me what about true blue because i don't like her 50s kind of in general i'm not gonna like a song that's influenced by like a 50s kind of Vibe, and I yeah. feel like True Blue has that like, dun,
0: dun, dun, dun. I, know, I, I don't it. know. I just that cannot, album like, is my true blue, is probably my favorite Madonna oh, really? album. Well, true, See, blue, I like like a prayer, true blue, <laughs> like a prayer, confessions on a dance floor. Those are my three fi- top three Madonna albums. Right. I love like a prayer. I don't even know what is second.
1: I don't know that I love a complete album of hers as much as I like true, um, like a prayer. Like, I love every song on that album. Every song's amazing. <laughs> oh, father, right. I know you it's love so- that song. <laughs> of course <laughs> but like i even like anthem. the dipshitty ones on that where it's like dear jesse dear jesse's great what oh, about you know what i love the my favorite song in that that might be kind of kind
0: of cutesy is cherish i fucking love cherish "Cherish" is one of my all-time favorite
1: madonna songs. <laughs> that's what i want to be murdered too i'm changing my mind okay, okay
0: you do cherish so if you're listening to me stalker please actually no because i don't want to encourage any any whatever no (laughs) don't put it into the universe i just gotta i'm saging this podcast i'm saging this podcast if you're a guy and you're an obsessed fan of the show please leave me alone like i'm we don't want to be murdered even so tired already like i'm just tired please don't please don't. i'll be so irritated
1: um okay so he was convicted of capital murder in that non-jury courtroom, and he was sentenced to life without parole by Superior Court Judge Dino Folgani on December 20th, 1991. At some point in the thing I'm, this article I took this from, his eyes were flashing like sick, satanic neons. I mean, this writer got a little overboard. He, <laughs> that's over the top. Uh, he said to the judge, The idea that I killed her for fame is totally ridiculous. I do realize the magnitude of what I've done. I don't think it needs to be compounded by a bunch of lies because she's an actress. Come on. I mean, the whole fucking reason he was into her was because she was an actress. Also, he's not stalking anyone else. It was like Debbie Gibson, Tiffany Madonna. Like, it's only famous people. So I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Yeah, he's not stalking Carol from Jack in
0: the Box. (laughs)
1: Uh, A year after the slaying, he gave another interview in which he stated, I was a fan of hers and I may have carried it too far. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. I don't think we need the may. Uh, but a lot of things have appeared in the press to make me out to be a monster. If I had only one wish where it was ever to come true, it would be for Rebecca Schaefer to be alive again. Shut the
0: fuck up. So I you mean, get terrorize her again? Go fuck yourself. I hate this guy. I hate him too. And it's like it's such a classic,
1: I'm still a good guy. I'm not a monster. It's like, no, I'm sorry. You are a monster. You're a monster. Like, like, sorry. Own it. So after the murder of Rebecca Schaefer and the assault on Teresa Saldano – Governor George Duke Magian, who was the governor of California at the time, signed a law that prohibited the DMV from releasing addresses and inspired the Los Angeles Police Department to create the first threat management team. The California law was passed in 1990 and became effective on the first day of 91. The law was the first of its kind and later helped to convict Jonathan Norman, who was sentenced to 25 years in prisons for attempting to carry out threats against Steven Spielberg. According to the legislation, a stalker is defined as someone who willfully, maliciously, and repeatedly follows or harasses another victim and who makes a credible threat with intent to place the victim or a victim's immediate family in fear of their safety. There must be at least two incidents to constitute the crime and show a continuity of purpose or credible threat. By 1993, all states as well as Canada put anti-stalking laws into effect. So, look, it's tragic that these women suffered through this. But at least there were some changes that came out of it. Like, If you have to find a silver lining, all of these laws were put into effect that hopefully helped save other women or other men. Saldana also founded an organization called Victims for Victims, and that was a lobbying group that kind of really helped drive these anti-stalking laws to get them into effect throughout the nation. Sadly, Saldana also died at the age of 61 in 2016. Her uh she had a hospitalization for pneumonia and died which I think um that's kind of common I think where people don't get treated for pneumonia right away and kind of wait too long and go to the hospital and then sadly die there was one other interview in 2004 with Saldana where she spoke to Larry King about her ordeal and kind of gave another or gave like a little more insight into what had happened She said that she got the call from her mom that this guy was trying to find her. And then her manager also called and said that um, she had also been getting some odd calls from a man. And it appeared to be the same person based on, because he had an accent. He was from Scotland. At that point, she called the police. But at the time, they didn't have anything to protect women about stockings. Like, there was nothing in place at the time. So when she called the police, it was like there was nothing they could do. It was just a fan trying to get in contact with her. Right. She said at the time that she didn't realize he had been stalking her for 18 months and that for a week after I found out he had my address, I was very cautious and careful, but nothing happened. Um, So she kind of knew he had her address at some point because I guess her mom gave some information. And she talks about the private eye with Larry King. Uh, She said that, Initially, he had the private eye trying to get information on her, but because she was in New York, it was harder for him to find her. But once she moved to L.A., it was easier for him to kind of find someone, I guess, in L.A. as opposed to New York. So it's like another set of circumstances that just kind of all fucked up to lead to her attack. Now, shortly after Schaefer's death, Pam Dauber, uh, and other stars from My Sister Sam... Joel Brooks, David Naughton, and Jenny O'Hara all um, filmed a public service announcement for the Center to Prevent Handgun Violence. That was sort of done in her honor. Um, And the charity I mentioned earlier, Thursday Child, for which she was a spokesperson, uh, dedicated their work to her as well. Now, in the early 2000s, Bardo was actually, um, where he's serving life in prison, was attacked by another inmate uh, he was stabbed 11 times. Um, he did not die. He survived, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. I guess he's not living the greatest life and he's in prison for life. So he was attacked there um, by two, two inmates who had handmade shanks, I guess. Is that what they're called? Um, and the guy who attacked him was an 80, he was also in prison for life for second degree murder. Schaefer's life and death were actually the topic of the first E! True Hollywood story. Whoa. I did not, not know that. When did that come out? That came out March 29th, 1996. Her death was also featured on an EE television special called 20 Most Horrifying Hollywood Murders. Uh, and it was also a season two episode of Law & Order called Star Trek, Starstruck. Um, another interesting fact, Schaefer was dating director Brad uh, Silberling at the time of her death. Do you know him? No. I think he directed that movie, Casper. I'm sure he has better credits. Wait, the one with Devin Sawa? Is that the one with Devin Sawa? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah, everyone on Twitter mocks him for Casper, and he's always like, No, yeah. but they
0: love him. If it's a girl that, like, Devin Sawa and Casper, can I just say that Devin Sawa and Casper, like, made every girl my age's, like, panties wet? That was like, right. they freaked but out about it. other him.
1: people mock him for that role, And he – I just recently saw him say, like, I get it. I was in Casper. Like –
0: I feel like he's being facetious. Like, he's No, people
1: were sending him pictures of him in Casper. Like, as if it was uh, embarrassing.
0: Oh, because I hear – all I see on Twitter is girls being like, oh, my God, I had the biggest crush on you in Casper. But that's
1: girls. Guys are
0: dicks. They're just jealous that they didn't look like Devin Sawa because he was fucking gorgeous.
1: Well, anyways – Brad Silberling, who I believe directed Casper, he also directed a movie called Moonlight Mile, which came out in 2002, that was kind of loosely based um, on Rebecca's death. It's the story about a man whose fiancé was murdered. So it's not exactly real life, but it's definitely inspired by this period of time. After I was looking at the fact that that song Exit sort of supposedly triggered, there was a few other songs that also murderers sort of used as an excuse for what triggered, or people sort of accused of triggering murders or violence. Right. Obviously, one of the more famous ones is Helter Skelter. Of course. Which people obviously say inspired Charles Manson with the tate labianca murders in LA back in 1969. Um, you 2 actually performed a cover of Helter Skelter on their 1987 Joshua Tree tour. And during that uh, tour Bono says this is the song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles we're stealing it back okay no um, one no one associates it with you two <laughs> I know fuck you Bono um, another song is called Night Prowler by ACDC and that was the a Night Stalker song, right that the Night Stalker uh, loved also My Way by Frank Sinatra was sort of accused of, of um, this is sort of a funny one I mean not funny because people died but like interesting Uh, In karaoke bars in Philippines, people had to remove it from their catalogs because it was linked to several murders of singers who would sing My Way and like people hate it so much that it created this violence and they were called the my way killings i'm sorry i'm sorry i know but it's it's horrible to laugh but it's such an insane but i do get like well, there are certain karaoke songs you just want to like not hear well, that's just
0: something you joke about you're like i swear to god if someone right. does fucking sir mix a lot or summer time, nights from greece Jesus. if a couple does that i'm gonna fucking kill them
1: right um the other song was a post-mortem by Slayer. And that was blamed by the family of Elise Poller for her murder. So far, I don't don't care for any of these songs. Me either. But it actually did make me think at some point we should do a show about songs that inspired murders, supposedly. I would love it. I'm all over it. So that's just like something I'm going to touch upon. I'm not going to really go into it because I think that is an insane uh, thing to accuse a song of. Desi. But I do feel like if you're not in your right mind, I can see
0: how... It's, it's interesting. It is interesting. And I love talking about music. I could, talk, I could do a whole show about music. Right. Can I ask you a question sure. about this? Has a song ever inspired you to do anything besides give someone a blowjob? Like has a song <laughs> ever just like compelled you to do anything? I
1: mean, I would say definitely a song has made me cry. I'm trying to think if there's anything more out there other than typical things. Maybe blowjob. Sex? i don't know that i wasn't already horny when i put the song on though (laughs) right right in general though i'm not like a fucking to music person i'm not either i just don't like whenever people say that i'm like really like that's like the last thing i'm thinking of like let's put on some
0: eagles i like (laughs) who's fucking to the eagles i don't know like uh, take it to the limit (laughs) one more time desperado
1: I think it's like a joke I commonly make. Like, ooh, if a guy puts this on, I know he wants to fuck. But I right. don't actually think that's ever in my life really happened. Like, music might have been playing when something starts,
0: but it wasn't like, let's turn this on and set the mood
1: kind of thing. I don't need to have the mood
0: set. There's definitely songs where I'm like, this is a take your clothes off song. Really? Really? Yeah, but not that like I like want to put it on to take my clothes off. I'm just saying like if I'm like out like dancing strip- or if I hear a song, I'm like, ooh, I want to take my clothes off.
1: The only song I can think of that really used to make me want to dance was Dancing Queen. And I realized that sounds very, <laughs> but I just remember really like dancing to that song because I-, I had like really lame choreography to it.
0: Somebody on Twitter, a gay man posted the hottest take I've ever seen in my life on Twitter. And I actually agreed with it. And I don't even want to say it because I really don't want to hear about it. But they were like, ABBA. Is better than the Beatles. Fucking don't at me. And I was like, that is the spiciest take. I don't, I think you could argue that they're not better than the Beatles, but I realized I was like, I technically listen to way more ABBA than I listen to the Beatles.
1: I think that ABBA is very underrated. In general, I hate hot takes that are about taking down the Beatles because I feel like those are actually lukewarm takes. (laughs) Right. At some point, it's like, oh, you hate the Beatles. Like, okay.
0: Nobody... Like, I feel like you can't how do hate, you hate them. hate the Beatles? Come on. Like, it's I, just ridiculous. I, I agree with you, though. You listen to someone more right. than the Beatles. That's 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 really my take I on it. I love ABBA.
1: I feel like ABBA is completely underrated. They're really I underrated.
0: Mean, they make really good pop music. Although
1: I have to say... Do I listen to any B side ABBA songs? Probably no. not. But I do love
0: all of the hits. All the hit songs lot. are great. They're all amazing, right?
1: Fernando might be my favorite. I fucking
0: love Fernando. Mine's "Gimme, <laughs> Gimme a Man After Midnight." Oh no, Waterloo. That's my favorite. Oh, Waterloo is, is Waterloo. Really Waterloo. But I do love favorite.
1: Dancing Queen. I mean, it's, it's like, great. It's a classic. That piano in it. I mean, it's fucking. Great. I feel like when I would hear that song come on, it was definitely something where I was like, <gasps> like, oh, <It's> special. <laughs> Music used to be more special, I think, because. Now you can just play whatever you want whenever. But I do always love hearing a song. I always call it when I hear a song in the wild. Right. It's always really exciting for me. Like, right. ooh, Billie Jean. Like, <laughs> even though I can play it literally whenever I want. But it's like something about hearing it at Vons. You're like, ooh,
0: yeah. <laughs> Brendan and I heard the song What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers in Home Depot. Like, That's like the best Six months ago. Yeah. And he just starts doing a full-blown Michael McDonald impression. Like, the best Michael McDonald Ooh. voice I've ever heard in my life. It actually made me horny. Ooh. Like, ironically horny because yeah. it was such a good impression. Right. And he knew all the words to the song, which, like, I've never liked the Doobie Brothers or Michael McDonald's. And then I realized, like, we went home and we're like, let's, like, fucking ironically listen to michael mcdonald and brennan's like no michael mcdonald's really talented and we like listen to a bunch of michael mcdonald songs in a row and i was like is this what getting older is like i'm at the age now where i'm like wait he's like really talented
1: no (laughs) i like those songs that's also something i never listen to but when i hear it i'm like oh my god
0: (laughs) right i would never put i would never put it on on, like sometimes
1: i'll have like a spotify playlist on and like a Doobie Brothers or Michael McDonald thing. I'm like, oh, is this regulate? I'm like, no, it's the Michael McDonald one, and that's a good sample. <laughs> Oh, my
0: God. So
1: it's like, yeah, I get excited. That's why I love listening to Spotify playlists that I don't create, like just ones, right. whatever, or the radio stations based on a song because you'll hear these songs and it's just like
0: hilarious. Right. So, yeah. Totally. I agree. I never put on Michael McDonald. Ever. But I
1: am always happy
0: when well, it comes now, to- when, <laughs> Well, now, since I – here's the thing. Like there are certain songs where like I've ironically listened to them so many times right. that I actually realize. look, be honest with yourself. You actually just like this it's song. It's not ironic. Here's an ironic song that I actually – just fucking like and I have to get I have to get really honest with myself about it and I've always liked this song it's Informer by Snow <laughs> that's my fucking truth that's my that's truth that's how I
1: feel about Call Me Maybe like I fucking love Call Me Maybe I always get excited when I hear
0: it's it. a good pop song
1: <laughs> okay do we have anything else? Um,
0: no okay so I don't think so check us out on Facebook we have a
1: friend group Hollywood Crime Scene Friends yes we, we're there a lot we talk people. all the time to people and there as you I set up top I took a request this week so we'd listen to your
0: suggestions and sometimes we do them that week right so and next week is Phil Spector yeah I will be watching the movie on H it's on HBO right oh I just watched it a few months ago so everyone <laughs> if you have HBO go or HBO right. watch a, the um, movie because we're gonna yeah we're gonna talk about it okay yeah cool. okay so, all right Bye. bye